Hello, this is Jeremiah Jenny, and welcome to another episode of Barbarians at the Gate, a semi-serious look at Chinese history and Chinese culture broadcast from Beijing. And joining me once again in the co-host chair is James Palmer, fresh from his matrimonial visit to the United Kingdom. Today, James and I are going to be talking about the Khitan, a people from Northeast Asia who founded the Liao Dynasty in Chinese history, but have a rich story of their own, one which really represents the interplay of forces between the steppe and the plains of central China. James, why are we choosing the Khitan? What I think is uh, extraordinary about the Khitan is that they bridged this role between being conquered and conquered. They found their own dynasty in China. They go on to found various other Khanates elsewhere. But they're also a people who are driven apart by the movement of empires who are swept away or pushed into different places by the Mongols. And so they end up all over Asia. Their descendants end up in Yunnan, in the very southern part of China. They end up in the northeastern tip of Persia, modern-day Iran. So there are people who are scattered, but who also, in their own time, in their own place, made an empire of their own. And they really were one of the first peoples to take over almost all of what we think of as modern-day Manchuria, that, ex- that area of northeast Asia, east of the Mongolian plains, but just west of the Korean peninsula. And by doing so, they, they paved the way for many other empires to emerge from that area to conquer parts of what's today China. And the, the Khitan really were the, one of the first groups to not only conquer much of North China, but to establish a capital in the vicinity of where we're sitting right now, present-day Beijing. Yeah, so before then, you have these sort of scattered northern kingdoms, quote-unquote barbarian kingdoms, that emerge in the region. But they are the first to put it all together, to have a unified northern kingdom, and to found the capital in uh, Yan, in near modern-day Beijing, in in the 10th century. So they start off very early. They start, I think the first records of them are in the 5th century or so, when they're a people just to the west of Mongolia, more or less. They're not particularly strong or powerful at the time. They're bullied or kicked around by the Uyghur in particular over the centuries. So they're this somewhat subordinate people who then emerge at the beginning of the 10th century as this major power, and they emerge under this very classical sort of step figure called Baoji, who is one of those leaders who every so often the sort of tumult of step politics throws up somebody who can put together these sort of confederations, who combines the political and strategic genius needed to turn raiders and nomads and traders into an empire. And we see these figures emerge very often whenever we have one of these steppe civilizations rise to power. Think about, of course, Chinggis Khan and the Mongolian Empire. And then later on, you have uh, Nurhaci and the Manchus. And, and one of the things I, I think is, is quite interesting, you take a look at Nurhaci and the Manchus in the 17th century, or Chinggis Khan you know, going back to the 12th century, and then Abalji going into the 10th century, is that once these figures emerge from kind of the murky mists of history, there's always this attempt to kind of retroactively create a backstory for them, a mythical origin, not just of this particular figure, but of the entire group. And, you know, you're right. There isn't a lot of written records about the Khitan that go back to the, what we think of maybe as their origins. Although we have this idea that they may have split off from the Xianbei tribes, you know, in the 4th or 5th century. But much of what we know, much of what we, we understand about the Khitan are kind of this mythology that they create themselves much later as part of their own dynastic history or, or part of their, their origin story. They have- have the very classic Central Asian origin story of person X and person Y meet on animal X and animal Y, or sometimes animal X meets person Y, you know, a red wolf 
ox, a black goat, or in their case, I think it's a blue ox and a grey horse or something along these lines, or people riding a blue ox and a grey horse and they meet and they are also gods or decided later to be gods and then their descendants have this sort of right to rule that comes from that, that comes from this divine descent. But what's tricky with, I think, these steppe confederations too is that in some ways it's misleading to think of them as, a, as peoples, particularly at the point before they really define themselves. They're much more like affiliations, groups. So you would have, you would have groups or tribes or clans coming into and breaking off from them. So it's not really... I mean, it's always so hard to tell because the records we have of them are, are written by the settled peoples. I think that it wasn't really until they came into a state where they had to clearly define themselves that you started to get this idea of, of a, a single group, single single lineages. And when the Kitan come into Chinese history, when they emerge as the Liao, it's then, for instance, that it's formalized that the leaders come from this clan and the leaders marry the woman from this line, and so on and so on. So before that, I suspect they looked like most of the these step groups where people would break in, break off, and so it's more the, the idea that, that lives on than a, a single people. I think that's a really good point. We're talking about these kind of confederations that they, they come together, they fall apart, they come together, they fall apart, until finally when they do get organized, it's often because they are being threatened or being pressed from different sides. Maybe just to give a, a little bit of background here. So what we're talking about is the end of the Tang Empire. The Tang Empire, of course, lasted until roughly 906 or 907 AD. It was at this point, once the Tang Empire ends, and this was one of China's mightiest empires, that the whole area that we think of as China began to fracture. A lot of this had to do with local rebellions and local powers, not unlike the kind we saw at the end of the An Lushan Rebellion. And when this happens, you have, you know, a lot of the groups that surround the Tang Empire, some of whom had worked with the Tang, some of who had been allied with the Tang, some of who had been in opposition, begin to take advantage of this fragmentation. And so we have this period between, you know, in the 10th century, where there are these succession of dynasties, the, the five, what we call in Chinese history, the five dynasties, these states that rise, fall, rise and fall, rise and fall. And you can imagine Khitan as this people out in Northeast Asia, looking in on this unfortunate folding in the 10th century and thinking, you know, maybe this is our opportunity to take a piece of this treasured agricultural land with its rich settled cities. We know that, for example, the the Uyghur were used by the Tang Empire in a lot of their battles. How did the Khitan fit into this? You know, the Khitan certainly were not enemies of the Uyghur, were very wary, were kind of hemmed in by the Uyghurs in eastern Mongolia. What was the relationship of the Khitan to the Tang and the Uyghurs to the Tang at this time? So by this point, the Uyghurs are a lot weaker than they've been at the time of Anlushan when they emerged as this power because they emerge out of the sort of chaos of the Anlushan rebellion as the main allies of the Tang. They start to get more and more privileges. But then by 845 when there's a big persecution of foreign religions in China that's used to target the Uyghur as well. And a lot of Uyghur power is collapsing at that point, and that frees up the Kitan a little bit to have more military expansion, to start to settle their own power base. And then 50 years after that, Abaoji emerges, and almost straight after he's established this new kingdom, they go on just a conquest spree. They take really take advantage of the divided, chaotic end of the Tang, and they're just like, well, we'll have this, we'll have this, we'll have this, 
and you know they're playing everybody off against each other they're seizing whatever territory they can and they expand very very fast and Abaji is this kind of towering figure I mean in some ways quite literally there's this story that by by the reckoning of the time he was something like 10 feet tall and this in- incredible warrior. And he also had a lot of innovations that he brings to uh, ruling in terms of, you know, especially once the Khitan are able to move down from the steppe and they start to you know, consolidate their rule over what's today northern China and particularly the, the area that stretches between Datong in the northwest, the Bohai Gulf in the, in the southeast. They're one of the first of these steppe people to face the rather impressive challenge of, okay, now that we've conquered this part, this, this area that was once China, how do we rule it? I mean, can we rule it as we've ruled our own people up in the, the steppe? Or do we have to come up with some, something new, a new system? And Abaji puts in place two important innovations, one of which is this idea that a dual administration. So in the northern part, where it's you know still the Khitans of the steppe, Abaji has the people ruling as they always have. But in the Chinese regions, he starts to, and, and it's a pattern that we see later on in history too, starts using Chinese officials, many of whom were captured or enslaved, nevertheless using Chinese officials to rule in kind of a Chinese manner. And so that allowed him a certain amount, allowed the Khitan a certain amount of flexibility. And of course, one of the other big innovations that he introduces, and this is not very popular among his fellow Khitan was the introduction of primogeniture. So this idea was adopted in some ways from the Chinese that it's my son who will take over. It, it differed very much from the way that Khitan used to choose their rulers. Which was the good old-fashioned step way of having a big fight and seeing who won. And uh, Baji came through that himself. He pretty much killed off all his opponents, all the other potential Khans. But then he was like, nope, now it's going to be my family. At the same time, he's setting up the system whereby he's both... This is up in about uh, 915, 916, by he's both the great Khan, so he's this sort of northern authority, nomadic, powerful military figure, but he's also a Chinese-style emperor. He takes the title of emperor, takes on the trappings of the imperial court, and he, he and his successors move between those roles. Yeah, and that's really interesting for me, because again, I'm come, I always come out of this, you know, and I always refer back to the Manchus, because that's my field of study. But that's something that the Manchus really took and perfected. This idea that the emperor could have multiple roles for multiple constituencies to, re- to know how to be a very good Chinese emperor in a way that Chinese officials and Chinese elites could accept and yet not lose touch with what it meant to be a Khan. For two Chinese, you can lose that ability to rule Central Asia. If you try to rule China as a Central Asian Khan, you're not going to win over the loyalty of the Chinese elites, which you need to rule in this part of the this part of the world. And so, you know, it is that really interesting that that Abaji so early on hits on this as the the formula. We use the word conquest dynasty. It refers to one of these people from outside historical China that comes in and, and takes over, and not just takes over an area, but then also specifically uses a dynastic name or a dynastic title as a way of, of legitimizing their rule in China. And so this, this way that these conquest dynasties are able to, be, to divide uh, their style of rule as appropriate, it's, it's really kind of interesting it happens so early. Yeah, I mean, he's picking up a little bit on Tang cues because, of course, the Tang will, would also often identify themselves as heavenly Khan. Uh, so they, were play, they would play Central Asian politics, but it was never as clear a division as the Liao set up. 
So Balji sets up this kingdom, but then very soon his successors are confronted by a new problem, which is that they're facing a very powerful new Chinese dynasty, the Song. Now the Song in later histories tend to get a bad rap militarily because they lost later to two other conquest dynasties, the Jin and then the Mongols. They're always portrayed by Chinese historians as being these sort of slightly feminized, weak, too much emphasis on the poetry and and the the ways of the court. You're right that that's when in traditional Chinese historiography we look back at the Song, especially when we compare it with the the preceding Tang Empire, which was sort of this great point of culture and military expansion. In the Song, we look at what it meant to be an elite in the Song, where these gentlemen, as you mentioned, with their poetry and their philosophy, first the Jurchen out of Manchuria, and then the Mongolians just take the Song lunch money every single time. I, I know what you're. I, I, I know what you're going to say about the the song in the beginning being its military machine. But I'd like to to make one small point too for the song being a lot tougher than people think. Because even at the end, when they even after the wars with the Khitan and the wars with the proto Manchu Jurchen, and then finally with the Mongolians, the song hold out against the Mongolians a lot longer than most of the rest of Asia and Europe. And you know, I'm sorry, you, you you can't hold out that long against the might of the Mongolian armies if you're just a bunch of poetry writing. It just doesn't happen. And so I think that this, I definitely think it's time, and I know a lot of academics have done this, but to kind of rethink this notion of the Song being militarily inferior dynasty sandwiched between Tang Empire on one end and the Ming Dynasty on the other. Yeah, I mean, the, to- the Song from the start of this military machine of reunification, they conquer or reunite, depending on how you look at it, the rest of southern and central China within a, the process of about a decade. They they innovate in drill, in gunpowder weaponry. They're a really smart, mean people, and they must have been terrifying to come up against. So it, in some ways that makes it all the more remarkable that the Liao, who were much smaller than them, I mean, whose, whose population was maybe a third of the Song population or less, were able to hold on to the areas of northern China that they'd taken. These areas were the 16 prefectures. And this became this big bleeding wound for the Song. This idea that these territories were being held by barbarians and they made attempt after attempt after attempt to retake them. It was the sort of Alsace-Lorraine of the Song. It was this area that had been seized by the enemy and that national honor demanded that you retake. So they went to war with the Liao numerous times and it almost always just ended up in this stalemate. Um, Because the Liao set up pretty good defensive systems because they were very tight, they were very organized, and because most of all the the population that they've conquered was not actually that keen to belong to anyone else. They seem to have been pretty pretty happy under under the Liao because the Liao managed this dual government so well. They didn't feel that they were being oppressed or that they were being trampled down by the nomads. They just felt, well, you know, we got an emperor, he's a perfectly good emperor. Why why do we need to swap him for another one? And I think, you know, one of the most important figures at this time is an, an emperor that we refer to in Chinese as the Emperor Shengzong, who ruled the Liao Empire from 982 until 1031. And it was under this emperor, and, and this emperor came to the throne at a rather young age. I believe he was like 14 or 15 at the time when he first takes the throne. 
this is a moment of some vulnerability because you have a young emperor. This is the beginnings of the Song Empire. So the Song have been around for about 20 years, and we have three fairly energetic, very uh, respected emperors in the beginning of the Song. And when Shenzong from the Liao Empire takes the throne at a young age, they, uh, some of the, the, the Song armies take this as a sign of weakness and begin yet another attack against the Liao. Despite his young age, he has a lot of good people around him at court, and the young Liao emperor and the armies of the Khitan defeat once again the Song. And this goes back and forth throughout the reign of uh, the Shengzong emperor of the Khitan until finally get to a point in the early 11th century when it just becomes easier for the Song to sign a treaty with the, with the Khitan. And this is one of those points, to be honest, where historians look back and and there's a feeling like all right the song are kind of capitulating here they're appeasing these northern barbarians you know in exchange for 200,000 volts of silk 100,000 ounces of silver and the general idea that the the Liao emperor the Khitan emperor the Khitan ruler is the superior monarch in this arrangement Uh, it's it's a fairly humiliating set of conditions placed upon the song emperors and I think this is what a lot of later historians are reacting to Although, as you said, these these prefectures, these 16 prefectures that everyone was concerned about, was it really worth, you know, another four decades of war to dislodge the Khitan when they were so well entrenched? Uh, the Song had other, would very soon have very serious foes to fight. And so it just seemed better to hand over their lunch money every day at noontime to the Khitan and not get beat up than it did to just kind of continually either dodge the issue or get into scraps they couldn't possibly win. There's also a lot of debate over the treaty and what the treaty ended up as nowadays and there's some fairly convincing evidence I think that it basically ends up a trade deal that they said the the song is sending this up but they're getting this back so it's not as humiliating as it was made out later because of course the humiliation tended to get play, played up both by later dynasties to reinforce their own legitimacy and then later on in the 20th century because it fits so well into the sort of idea of national humiliation and redemption and the um you know they had a a solid century of peace more or less with the Liao after they signed the treaty um, even though they'd go and fight little sort of proxy battles elsewhere sometimes they never stopped bitching the song just never stopped bitching about the 16 prefectures there's always this you know oh but in the north the horsemen ride over our beloved lands and you know this is by people who they lost this territory like 150 years ago but they're still holding on to this notion of our, our beautiful north languishes under the yoke of the barbarian yada 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 And it's that persistence and that arrogance in believing that these lands are inherently Chinese, that they can and must be retaken. And the people there want to return to the glorious, um, to the glorious empire that actually ends up bringing down the song. And I think sometimes, too, that there's an emphasis on these 16 prefectures today because the prefectures contain the area that is modern-day Beijing. And there's sort of a temptation to read back into history the importance of Beijing today back a thousand years which is really kind of a mistake think well this has always been this you know magnificent city but for most of Beijing's history for the first like going back to about 1050 BC and and really you know for the 2000 years prior to the Khitan's arrival this was a rest stop this was a way station it was a, a, a local capital at times but the whole point of this city being here is it's at this if you've ever take a look at a map of Beijing you'll see this you know Beijing 
it has its back up against this chain of mountains. And these mountains, in many ways, are the separation between the steppe and the, the North China Plain or the Central China Plains. It's the, the, the dividing line from the Chinese perspective between the steppe and civilization. And we have this mountain pass that goes up to Zhengjiakou and out to these mountains. And this was this route between the civil out of civilization. So if you went to the left, you were on the Silk Road. You went to the right, that's the route you took to invade Korea. And for a long time, Beijing is this like depot, this rest area, until the Khitan come down from the north. And now all of a sudden, for them, it's not the for last stop out of civilization, it's the first stop in. And they, they, they like civilization too. I mean, they, they become pretty signified. Now, Again, it, there's always this temptation to say, oh, well, of course they adopted Chinese ways because of the inherent superiority of Chinese ways. But they really did like writing. They liked poetry. They liked not having to kill all your brothers. You know, they, they, they softened up a little bit. At, at one point, they more or less gave up hunting, which was a big thing, because the hunt was such a key part of um, nomadic power, nomadic identity. Um, and of early, of very early Chinese identities, all all based around the hunt in the really early dynasties. But hunting's frowned on by Confucius, and at one point the emperor is considering going on a hunt, and he's advised against it by his advisors because Confucius has spoken against it. And that's really a sort of critical point in this move away from military nomadic power to this more settled, somewhat more bureaucratic uh, power. So after a hundred, so after a hundred years of peace by the eleven tens, eleven twenties, the Liao have become this comfortably Chinese slash Northern people splitting this identity. But the Song are still convinced that they can take back the sixteen prefectures. They're still convinced that this this can reunify China, regain national honor, and of course make the name of whatever emperor does it and whatever generals do it. And it's that that really ends up bringing down, ironically, both the Liao and the Song, at least the, the Song as a, a, as a power controlling all of China or most of China. Yeah, because of what we, we see, and this is kind of an interesting pattern. You have the Song who are in the southern part of what's today China. They control most of China except for these 16 wayward prefectures that are part of the Khitan Empire. And the Khitan and the Song are both, they have eyes to the north because coming out of what's today Manchuria are this proto-Manchu people called the, the Jurched. And the Jurched, like the later Manchus, emerge from the forests and mountains of the area right around the border of Korea and China today. And as the Jurched become more powerful, and the Khitan are looking, them at, looking at them as a potential rival for power in Northeast Asia, and the Song are looking at them as, as an interesting possible ally in their ongoing fight with the, with the Khitan. And it's one of the things about the Song that always has amused me is this temptation to call the same play over and over again, even when it's clear it's not working. And that play is, let's you know, side with one of these barbarian people against the one we don't like and trust that our allies are going to be far less barbaric and acquisitive than the group that we want to get rid of. So all this time, the Liao have been also controlling the North through the usual means. That is, they've been bribing some leaders. They've been having anybody who looks as though he might be too powerful assassinated. They've been fighting little wars here, stomping on people here, 
paying off people here, or the constant churl of politics that you need to stop somebody emerging. And Aguda, who's the leader of the Jurchen, is another of these uh, geniuses that the, the, the Northeast semi-nomadic peoples throws up. And it's clear from quite early on that he's going to be a real leader, a threat. And, and very early on, there's a story that he, the, the Iron Emperor is planning to have him killed because he's going to be a threat. But he comes to the capital as one of, part of one of their regular gatherings, and indeed a, a hunt to, again, reassert, to reassert this sort of northern identity. And on the hunt, he gets on really well with the Liao Emperor, and he hunts really well. And the Emperor is like, ah, we shouldn't kill him. He's a great bloke. I love him. I love him. He's my mate. He'd never do us wrong. Um, and that turns out exactly as well as you, you think it would. So the Jurchen are then emerging as this unified power, um, threatening the Liao in the north. And the Song are like, you know what? Great idea. Why don't we, why don't we team up, come on either side, fuck the Liao in the center. So they send embassies to the to the Jurchen, and they they invade the Liao simultaneously from both sides. And the Jin side goes great. The Jin side just pretty much rolls through the Liao. But the Song expedition is a complete disaster. And it's a complete disaster because it relies on that call of failed military expeditions from from, from ancient times onwards, as um, so many Chinese articles like to say, the people will rise up and join us. So one of the key points of this military campaign is the belief that the Han Chinese population that has been suffering under the rule of the Liao will rise up and aid the invading armies, open the city gates, and so on. And they don't. They have no interest in, in um, betraying their their rulers and betraying who, people who in many cases they see as countrymen and the expedition is a complete disaster and in fact the Liao push back and are pushing into even as they're being attacked by the Jurchen on one side are pushing back into Song territory on the other and the, the Jurchen uh, see this and think well if you know if the Liao can roll over these guys even when we're even when we're hitting them then what could we do so they just keep going. They go through the Liao, they conquer the Liao, and they come down to the Song and they slice through these divided, ineffectual Song armies like Bada. And uh, what of course ends up happening too is that, and this plays a role too in the history here in Beijing, because the Liao have, you know, they're one of their capitals here in Beijing. They're, they call it their southern capital, which is really helpful given that, as most people know, Beijing Today means northern capital. One of the fun things about studying Chinese history is the shifting sands of geographic geographic terms. But the other part of it is that this this you know Kitan southern capital has left us a couple of only a couple, but a few um, sites around the city here, including, of course, the Tianning Pagoda, which is located in western southwestern Beijing. It's one of the few areas of the modern city that overlap with the old Kitan capital. But this is the target of these Jurchen. The Jurchen come down through, and they're looking towards the, the, the capitals here in what's today Beijing and another Kitan capital, which I believe was up near Datong. The Jurchen, beginning in the early 12th century, so talking around like 1105, 1110, you're right, they just roll through. And the, the Kitan uh, are scattered almost you know, far and wide as a result of this shocking blow by a very, very powerful new enemy. And so powerful, in fact, that the blowback 
from the the Jurchen, as you said, goes right through the the Kitan, and they continue south until you know the Song look up and they realize that they've lost half of their empire, their capital, and their emperor to this two emperors, two emperors. They they managed to lose both the emperor and the emperors and the new emperor to the to the Jurchen, who are now the, the Jin dynasty. There's always this this sort of excruciating embarrassment on the part of the the, the Southern Song, that they have these emperors held in captivity who can be brought out and used as power tools at any moment. So the the Jurchen, now the Jin dynasty, come through, smash the Liao. And now the Kitan have a, a choice. They can stay and become part of the new order, which there's obviously a place for them in, even if it's not the same place that they enjoyed before. Or they can flee. And so the, the, the noble families flee. They take... Uh, warrior groups, they take their, their their leaders, they take their groups of warriors, they take their basically personal bodyguards, and they ride out, and they go looking uh, in true sort of um, warrior family fashion for somewhere else to, to conquer and start up a kingdom again. That's what I love about sort of nomad dynasties is that when you lose in a place you're like, well, I guess there's open road ahead of us. And in this case, they follow a leader known as Yelu Dasher, and he takes them way, way west. So he takes 20,000 of his horsemen and, and their families, and he brings them all the way through Kazakhstan into modern-day Kyrgyzstan. Seizes a city, which again, this is a classic kind of displaced noble move, is you go and find a city that's underprotected, or honestly, in some cases, I think that needs, that, that wants a new leader, that wants new rulership, and you, you bring in your men and you make yourself the new power. So it's a little bit like a criminal gang settling in a new territory. You know, once the Corleones are under threat in, in New York, they pick it up and they start again in Vegas. I was actually thinking this whole idea of, like, you pick up your soldiers, you find a new city to rule, is pretty much the entire plot line for Dragon Barbie on Game of Thrones. <laughs> so, yeah, all over all over Eurasia, this is this is the model. You, you get beat in one place, you dust yourself off, Go and find somewhere else. And so this group ends up forming something called the Karakitai, which is all the way out west in, in modern Kyrgyzstan. And they, they, they try to establish kind of a western Liao that lasts almost another hundred years or so until they too are swept away by the rising tide of Mongolian power and the armies of Genghis Khan and his descendants. Well, when we're taking a look at the Khitan and the fall of the Khitan, you know, the, the, they had a lot of success, but ultimately they're not able to withstand pressures of the conquest of this Jurchen people. They're not able to fully exploit the successes they had against the Song. But is there any reason other than simply just being caught between two powers that ultimately were, were stronger than they, they calculated? For them to fall, I mean, was there anything about uh, the dynasty or the empire itself that had any kind of structural weakness, or or was this simply a case of when you are a nomadic people who established an empire? Sometimes, you know, to use that gangster analogy, sometimes it's just bigger, badder nomadic or semi-nomadic people around the corner who may just be able to kick your ass no matter how good you are. And you've got to figure when Genghis turns up, having been through the same thing with the Jin and Baji, that just like. Oh my god, again? Really? No, I think they were just geographically buggered, basically. I mean, you get these things which are all something really to ideas about the fall of Rome. You get this idea that 
they were weakened by Buddhism because of Buddhism's pacifism. But Christianity is a pacifist religion, and that never stops the Europeans. But you get this, you know, you get this idea that you know, like Gibbon talking about Christianity making the Roman Empire soft. That Buddhism, with all its sort of sectarianism and money put into monks, made the Catan soft. And I just don't think that was true. I think they just had bad luck, or in, in some ways almost inevitable luck. I mean, no doubt there's some alternate history in which they won out, they took all of China, and even now the song, and in, you know, Earth be, they're the ones who get portrayed as part of the, the rightful Chinese lineage, and the song are the usurpers who get beaten by the rightful dynasty. Stuck up in the north, they were always going to be rolled over by the next great step genius that came along. What's the legacy today? I mean, we have the legacy in language because, and your Russian is way better than mine will ever be, but this idea that the Kitan, or as they were sometimes pronounced, the Kite, that name ended up influencing the word for China in several different languages and also gives us, at least in English, the name Cathay today. Well, the Russian is still Kitai and the Mongolian. Um, Mongolians will still hiss Kitai at Chinese when they, when, when they come into a Mongolian bar or territory. So apart from this linguistic legacy in the name Kitai, Kathay, and so on, they left the two scripts of their own, big script and small script, which we can't really read properly. They're, they're somewhat deciphered, but not completely. And these scripts are fascinating because they're kind of cargo cult version of Chinese. That is, that Chinese is done by somebody who doesn't understand or read Chinese very well. And they seem to have more or less dropped them pretty quickly for many purposes and just used Chinese. So we have a bunch of documents and inscriptions and so on, which are in this weird sort of halfway world, as though you've had somebody copying, copying the alphabet, but not quite knowing how to do words right. So even after they were scattered, firstly by the Jurchen and the Jin, and then by the Mongols, who became the Yuan dynasty, they ended up leaving these little traces of legacy all over the place. So under the Mongols, they, they ended up being classified as Hanren, that is, as Northern Chinese, under the Mongol system, which was uh, fourfold. Um, Mongols at the top, other peoples next, Northern Chinese, Southern Chinese. And because they were classified as Chinese, it meant two things. It meant firstly that they could never be super successful under the Mongols because they were discriminated against. And it meant that they tended then to mix more with the Chinese and to identify more with the Han. So this produced two things. It meant to some degree that Kitan identity within China started to disintegrate a little bit. But it also meant that by the end of the Yuan, you have a couple of figures emerge who stick still very clearly have a Catan identity and are proud of that Catan identity even 120, 130 years after being conquered. So who maintain this, you know, whether it's a family history or a, or a local identity, we can't really tell, but who, who adopt these Catan habits and names to distinguish themselves and who become, one of whom is a general for the Yuan in the last years, one of whom is a, one of whom ends up uh, fighting, the, fighting the Yuan and serving the, the Ming. So that identity in China, it, it has this last sort of flourish at the end of the Yuan, but then it more or less disintegrates into the general sort of mess of northern, of northern Chinese. Yet at the same time, you have way, way down in Yunnan, you have this group of Kitan who are moved down there by the Mongols, or at least that's what their um, traditions, and I think there's some documentary evidence says. And they stick onto the Kitan identity, they call themselves Kitan, 
right up to uh, the 20th century, they're defining themselves as Catan. They have habits that are different from the locals. So this northern people ends up way down south, sticking to the old ways for six, seven centuries afterwards. And while another group ends up being pushed all the way to the west, ends up in northeast Persia and becomes absorbed into one of the later Persian dynasties, becomes this distinct group there that has these callbacks, has these echoes of their Chinese identity, of their, their nomadic history. So this, you know, you have this, this one little fusion, this one little culture that spreads out all through Eurasia and no doubt brings with it all kinds of ideas and influences that perhaps invisible to us now because they've just been absorbed into the general stream of Eurasian and Central Asian history, but which would have never been carried without them. And there are some groups throughout North Asia, Central Asia, that still claim a, a dis, that they are descendants in some ways of the Khitan, apart from this groups in Persia and Yunnan, the Daur people, Inner Mongolia. I've also heard, although I find this to be slightly less convincing, the Avenki people who also are in Inner Mongolia and parts of Siberia. Um, and then there's some evidence that perhaps different groups of, of what are today classified as Kyrgyz people may have Khitan ancestry as well but i think perhaps the larger point here is not so much who is who isn't and where do they go but just the extent to which this large powerful empire was scattered to the four winds and yet we have these remnant populations that pop up you know either in terms of you know self-conscious identity or, or real connection throughout all of asia but you know everywhere from persia to siberia and it, it it, it seems to be kind of a function of these groups that once they, they tend to come together and as, as you said, under these geniuses of the steppe, and then when they're done, they scatter again and, and, and often are in some ways lost to history. So they, they, they disintegrate, but you know, as we see in the people that claim them, they're, they're remembered because most of, these, most of these claims, the claims to be descended from Y, descended from X, they're pretty historically dubious. But they show that the, the idea, the memory, sort of lives on. The, the, uh, whether it lives on through oral tradition or whether it lives on because they read the books of the people that they conquered. And they're like, you know who else hated the Chinese? These dudes. Um, which is part of the way that the modern day Uyghur established their identity was basically by looking back and finding this powerful non-Chinese empire in the same ter- roughly the same territory that they that the modern-day Uyghur occupy, and being like, we're those guys. We want to be like them. Those are our our ancestors. Well, thank you, James. Uh, So join us in two weeks. We'll be continuing our series on barbarians for Barbarians at the Gate, and we'll be talking about Jakob Begg, who was an adventurer who journeyed to what's today Western China, then the province of Xinjiang, and started a rebellion in the 19th century that incorporated both these elements of people of Central Asia becoming involved in battles with the settled people of the Central Plains of China, but also brought elements of modern-day nationalism as well, and that leaves a, a lasting legacy. It's going to be a fascinating topic, and at the end of it, James and I will go outside and we'll ritually light our visas on fire. Join us in two weeks as we delve further into the history of barbarians here at Barbarians at the Gate. Thank you, James. Thank you, Jamal.